Welcome to What Christians Should Know, hosted by Dr. Elijah Sadoffel. This podcast equips you with clarity and meaningful answers about God, the Bible, and your Christian life. Now, here's Dr. Sadoffel. As we continue our lesson called The Bible Made Ridiculously Simple, this episode is number 5.7, where we're going to begin talking about the minor prophets. Now, as I've already touched on before, the designation major and minor prophets does not in any way, shape, or form denote the importance or the significance of particular prophetic books. Major and minor in general just denotes the overall length of certain prophetic books. So in the 12 books that are often referred to as the minor prophets, they are in no way of minor importance. They just merely tend to have shorter books relative to Isaiah, Daniel, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel. Now, historically, the prophets fulfilled their prophetic office when there was a king either on the throne in the northern kingdom of Israel or there was a king on the throne in the southern kingdom of Judah. There were some prophets that did fulfill their prophetic office after the Israelites were exiled, but we'll get to speak about them in the last three books of the Minor Prophets. Now, in general, the Minor Prophets, they were exceedingly nationalistic but they were not isolationists, meaning they had a unique particular concern for God's covenantal people, the Israelites, but they were not isolationists. So as a result, they always put an emphasis on how the people ought to live as an example to those nations around them, because they always saw the people and the nation of Israel in the context of the secular world in which Israel existed. As a result, in general, the minor prophets put an emphasis on God's people, the Ten Commandments, and good works. Generally speaking, the minor prophets also warned against godless alliances with other nations, and they denounced political and moral corruption. The minor prophets are often referred to as prophets of doom and gloom, and personally speaking, I think the minor prophets or the Book of Twelve are some of the most neglected books in the entire Bible. When pastors and Bible teachers tend to preach or speak on the Old Testament, they tend to gloss over the Old Testament's last twelve books, the minor prophets. That is unfortunate because although the minor prophets do tell of coming judgment, when the prophets back then spoke to Israel in the Old Testament, that applies to the church in the New Testament. And there are some valuable life lessons and some key insights that their minor prophets can teach us. The point is this that the minor prophets, the message they had for God's people back then, still has force, still has power, and still has relevancy now in the 21st century. So the first book we'll talk about is the book of Hosea. And the big idea of the book of Hosea is the hesed of God, is the loyal love, is the steadfast loving kindness of God. In a sense, the prophet Hosea was very similar to Jeremiah in that 
Hosea warned the nation would go into captivity, and he ended up seeing the nation being exiled. Jeremiah, as we already talked about, he was an eyewitness to the southern kingdom's exile and the siege of Jerusalem by the Babylonians. Hosea was an eyewitness to the siege and exile of the northern kingdom by the Assyrians. And just like Jeremiah, it's Hosea's personal experience that sets the stage or lays the foundation of his message. Essentially, Hosea is a prophet that walks out of a broken home to speak from a nation from a broken heart. So although Hosea delivered a brutal, piercing message, he was someone on the inside who was severely torn and heartbroken over the piercing words he had to deliver. And in a sense, Hosea gives us insight into the heart of God, because although God was using his prophets as reliable mouthpieces during this time to deliver a message of judgment to his people, on the inside, God's heart was grieved over the lethal message he had to deliver. And the story of Hosea in his book is told through the lens of marriage, is told through the lens of Hosea's relationship to his wife, Gomer. So in Hosea chapter 1, verses 2 to 3, the text says, When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go, take to yourself a wife of harlotry, and have children of harlotry, for the land commits flagrant harlotry, forsaking the Lord. So he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Deblame, and she conceived and bore him a son. So what we see in the opening chapter of Hosea is God commands his prophet to go and marry Gomer. Gomer is actively in the business of prostitution when God gives the command. And what we see is the story that unfolds in the rest of Hosea's book. It deals with the relationship between Hosea, who's always faithful and chasing after Gomer, and Gomer, who time and time again demonstrates her lack of faith in her blatant and flagrant adultery while she's married to Hosea. The book of Hosea therefore deals with the institution of marriage, and the reason why the institution of marriage is so important is that it's the only institution that left the Garden of Eden. It's the only institution that left paradise unchanged. So, for example, when our first parents left the Garden of Eden, they left with sin, they left with guilt, they left with shame, they left what was perfect and ideal and entered into a fallen world and all of the cataclysmic effects a fallen world has. However, the only thing that wasn't changed, the only thing that remained the same in paradise in the Garden of Eden and remained constant after Adam and Eve were exiled was the institution of marriage. And because marriage was something that was given to Adam and Eve, marriage is something that's much more than a legal construct. It is something that was created by God. It was received by human beings. And therefore, marriage is never something that can be taken lightly or that can be simply redefined or dismissed by a legal fiat. Marriage is ordained by God because God is the one who made it and we are the one who received it. 
So how all of this fits into the book of Hosea is simple. The story in the book of Hosea tells the tale of a prophet. Hosea is commanded to wed someone who is actively violating the covenant of marriage and God basically says, go and marry her anyway. And what the book of Hosea does, it acts as a mirror because all throughout the Old Testament, God is referred to as the husband and Israel, the nation as a whole, is referred to as his bride. In the New Testament now, a similar analogy exists in that Jesus Christ is the head of the church and all the members of his elect, all those who press faith in Jesus, we are his bride. So the story of Hosea and Gomer, of the faithful husband and the faithless wife, mirrors the relationship between God and Israel, between Christ and his church, between God and his people. So now that we know what the book of Hosea means, it gives us insight now into the entire drama of redemption. Hosea, based on Mosaic law, had a legal right to basically tell Gomer, never mind. He had a legal right to sever the relationship between he and Gomer. But although Gomer legally didn't deserve his love, although Gomer legally violated the covenant of marriage, what does Hosea do? He endlessly seeks after her and he endlessly pursues her because that's how seriously God considers his covenantal promises to his people. That is how seriously Hosea took the covenant of marriage to his wife. So seen in this way, what the book of Hosea does, it gives us insight into the love story of the Bible, the love story of a faithful God who always pursues and who always chases after a faithless people. Hosea, his name actually means salvation and is another form of the word Joshua. And Joshua, as we all know, is the Hebrew name of the Greek form Jesus. As a result of their union, Hosea and Gomer have three children. They had two boys and one girl. The first child was named Jezreel, and that name means God will disperse. The second child was called Lo Ruhama, which means you will not know my pity, I am not your father. And the third child was named Lo Ami, which means you are not my people, I am not you are God. So what God was communicating through the name of Hosea's children in a time of gross idolatry in the north was that even though these children were biologically Hosea's, he had them given names that said, I am not your father, you are not mine. So in context, God was telling his people that although they may have a biological relationship to a descendant of Abraham, in reality, those people who were living in gross disobedience to God were not his children because the fact of the matter is God does not have any illegitimate children. The true children of Abraham are spiritual children of Abraham who are circumcised in their hearts and delight to serve God and delight to obey him. So just as Jesus would end up saying in John 8:44, he essentially tells scribes and Pharisees that are biological descendants of Abraham that they are not sons of Abraham, they are in fact sons of their father, the devil. So 
Gomer bears three children to Hosea, and then you know what she does? She ends up going back to prostituting. Hosea ends up pleading with her and urges her to stop. She says no. Then the children go and plead with their mother, and she says no. And then what Gomer ends up doing is she sells herself into slavery. And then you know what Hosea does? Hosea then goes and redeems her. He buys her out of slavery and brings her back home. Hosea chapter 3 verses 1 to 3 says, Then the Lord said to me, Go again, love a woman who was loved by her husband, yet an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the sons of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love raisin cakes. So I bought her for myself for fifteen shekels of silver and a homer and a half of barley. Then I said to her, You shall stay with me for many days. You shall not play the harlot, nor shall you have a man, so I will also be toward you. So after now this renewal, or after now this symbolic second marriage, the book of Hosea doesn't tell us how Gomer responds, but what the relationship between Hosea, whose name means salvation, and Gomer paints a clear picture of, is Jesus, who ends up ransoming us from bondage, who ends up ransoming us out of slavery, so that we can now be reconciled to him. And again, the marriage between Hosea and Gomer tells us clearly about the faithfulness of God in spite of the faithlessness of his bride. Now, I also have to mention that when we see the mirror now between Hosea and Gomer and God and the people of Israel, the sin of the people of Israel did not go unpunished because ultimately, All of those in the northern kingdom of Israel who heard God's message did not respond and continued committing spiritual adultery. And as a result now of the people of Israel's spiritual adultery, they were exiled from the north and taken captive by the Assyrians. When we understand now the relationship between Hosea and Gomer, we can now appreciate just how pervasive and just how destructive Gomer's sin was. Because just as God seeks the best for and is always faithful to his children or his bride, Gomer essentially rejected the love of Hosea. Gomer rejected the faithfulness of someone, Hosea, when all he wanted to do was love her, nurture her, care for her, and protect her in the covenant of marriage. But the people of Israel, despite the fact that they were formed as a nation because of God, despite the fact that they were liberated from bondage out of Egypt because of God, despite the fact that they were in the promised land because of God, they essentially turned their backs and said never mind to God's love and did what was right in their own eyes. And they essentially then said no to God's love and the result was judgment and exile. However, still yet, in spite of the people's stubbornness, the people finally do come around as Hosea chapter 2 verses 14 to 23 tell us, because God's rejection of Israel was neither full nor final. And as he says in Hosea 14, 8, 
O Ephraim, or O Israel, what more have I to do with idols? It is I who answer and look after you. I am like a luxuriant cypress. From me comes your fruit. So what I hope I've made clear in the thrust of the narrative in the book of Hosea is one of the most grievous, one of the most heinous sins anyone could ever commit in the entire world is essentially saying no and turning their back to God's love. A love that chased after his bride endlessly, a love that was tortured and died for you on the cross, and a love that redeemed and purchased you out of bondage. The second in the book of 12 is the book of Joel. And the big idea of the book of Joel is the day of the Lord. Five times in the book of Joel, this day is made reference to. The first time we ever hear about the day of the Lord, it is first introduced here in the book of Joel. And to make things simple, the day of the Lord points forward, way into the future, and marks the second coming of Christ. Hebrew days always begin in the evening. So, for example, in Genesis chapter 1, it said there was subsequent days, and the text always says there was evening and there was morning. So a Hebrew day begins at night and then ends the next night. So it goes from darkness to light. So when Joel speaks about the day of the Lord, he's talking about a day that begins in darkness and then ends in the morning. So it basically begins in tribulation, it begins in judgment, it begins in strife, and then it ends with the daylight hours and victory and triumph, which basically tells us that in the coming day of the Lord, with the triumphant second coming of Christ, it's a two-edged sword. So for all of those who delight and believe in Jesus and profess faith in the Messiah, the day of the Lord will be redemption. It'll be victory when finally and fully Christ triumphs over all the forces of evil and the kingdom of heaven invades the kingdom of earth and his eternal kingdom will go on forever. But the really bad news is that when Christ finally and fully conquers and is victorious, all those who don't believe in him and all those who reject his love will be condemned. So the day of the Lord is just like the Bible. It's a two-edged sword. It's really, really good news in the end for those who believe, and it's really, really bad news in the end for those who do not. Joel 2 verses 1 to 3 says the following, Blow a trumpet in Zion and sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. Surely it is near, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. As the dawn is spread over the mountains, so there is a great and mighty people. There has never been anything like it, nor will there be again after it to the years of many generations. A fire consumes before them and behind Behind them a flame burns. The land is like the Garden of Eden before them, but a desolate wilderness behind them, and nothing at all escapes them.
So that describes the day of the Lord, which is ominous. But we are right now, if you're listening to my words right now, you are in a space of grace, meaning God has given you time, God has given you space to turn back to Him and to respond to His words before final judgment comes. So the prophet then follows up uh, that ominous prophecy of the day of the Lord by saying in Joel chapter 2, verses 12 to 13, Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart and with fasting, weeping and mourning, and rend your heart and not your garments. Now return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness, and relenting of evil. So this famous line here in Joel where God says, rend your heart and not your garments essentially means it's not about externalism or it's not about doing stuff on the outside that's ritualistic or ceremonial. Having a true and real relationship with God means having your heart rended or having a deep inward spiritual change of heart condition, which therefore animates outward change. But that that deep-seated change always begins on the inside and then moves outward. The last thing I'll say about the book of Joel is this. There's a prophecy in the book of Joel uh, that points forward to a time when the Spirit of God will be poured out. So in Joel chapter 2, verses 28 to 32, it says the following, It will come about after this that I will pour out my spirit on all mankind, and your sons and daughters will prophesy, your old men will dream dreams, your young men will see visions. Even on the male and female servants, I will pour out my spirit in those days. And what now happens in the New Testament is in Acts chapter 2 verse 16 on the day of Pentecost, the spirit of God is poured out. And you have flaming tongues and people prophesying and proclaiming the truth of God's word. And the Apostle Peter on the day of Pentecost essentially refers back to this prophecy of Joel and essentially says, this is what was spoken of, meaning what Joel prophesied hundreds of years earlier pointed forward to the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, verse 16. And the reason I mentioned Joel's prophecy and its connection to Acts was just to make clear how things in the Old Testament or prophecies that seem obscure or hard to interpret in the Old are made clear and revealed in the New. The third book in the book of 12 is Amos, and the big idea of the book of Amos is the justice of God. Amos 9, 8 says, Behold, the eyes of the Lord God are upon the sinful kingdom, and I will destroy it from off the face of the earth, saving that I will not utterly destroy the house of Jacob, saith the Lord." The prophet Amos was actually born in the southern kingdom. He was born in and around the area of Judah, but he was actually a prophet to the northern kingdom of Israel. So when he made that prophecy that I just read, he was actually a guy from the country of the south who moved all the way up to the northern kingdom of Israel and actually was prophesying at Bethel 
at that point in time, it was the King's Chapel. It was a place of false peace as well as false worship. Many people recognize Amos today as the prophetic voice that advocated the most for the poor and the oppressed. But the thing that we have to understand is that the prophet Amos's concern for justice was grounded theologically, which meant Amos's conception of justice wasn't political. It stemmed from having a proper relationship with God. So, in the worldview or the thrusts of justice in Amos's book, he looked at the society and the world around him and he saw oppression, he saw injustice, he saw people fighting one another, and he basically saw his own people backbiting and hurting one another so they could gain for themselves. But what Amos was saying was that justice comes from having a right relationship with God. Because if you know what God stands for and have a genuine love and desire for him, you will now do what is right. And if you're doing what is right, then you will walk in a path of righteousness and the effect of that will now be justice. So in Amos's view, justice was the, the final side effect. That was a consequence. But the source of true justice isn't legislated, it's regenerated. If you rend your heart and now have a genuine heart condition that is renewed and desires to do righteousness, the result of that will be justice for every other member in society. For as the King James of Amos 3.3 says, can two walk together except they be agreed? Meaning, a person cannot walk with God unless they're doing what is right and therefore walking in a path of righteousness. Because if you don't agree with God, then you will not do what is right. And now the result is injustice. And now what will happen is, as, as Amos says in chapter 2, verse 6, that those now workers of injustice will sell the righteous for money and the needy for a pair of sandals. So once again, the big idea in the book of Amos is the justice of God, which has a grounding theologically, not politically. In a prophetic view of the world, in a God-centered view of justice, people wouldn't need laws to have a just society. People wouldn't need laws to tell them what is right and what is wrong, because if they have an intact vertical relationship with God, it is He who will inform what is right and what is wrong. And by the daily practice of righteousness, now justice will become normal and justice will become pervasive in the day-to-day -day affairs of all people. And this is now so critically interesting because the book of Amos actually gives us clarity and actually gives us a God-centered solution to a modern problem, the problem of oppression, the problem of injustice. And Amos' solution isn't to fix people from the outside with laws and rules and regulations and programs. Amos' solution is God.
by the regenerating power of the Spirit, which works on the inward person and therefore works outward, mending and repairing interpersonal societal relationships. So the big idea of the Book of Amos is the justice of God, but in the Book of Amos you also have a coming expectation of the day of the Lord. And Amos doesn't mince words because in the end he says all those who don't hear will feel. Amos 5, 18-20 says, Alas, you who are longing for the day of the Lord, for what purpose will the day of the Lord be to you? It will be darkness and not light, as when a man flees from a lion and a bear meets him, or goes home, leans his hand against the wall, and a snake bites him. Will not the day of the Lord be darkness instead of light, even gloom, with no brightness in it? Further down in chapter 5, verses 21 to 24, God now speaks through the prophet and rejects his people for their externalism and all the outward signs of piety without the appropriate internal heart condition that manifests true obedience to God. God says, I hate, I reject your festivals, nor do I delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer up to me burnt offerings and your grain offerings, I will not accept them, and I will not even look at the peace offerings of your fat Take away from me the noise of your songs. I will not even listen to the sound of your harps, but let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. So again, the big idea of the book of Amos is the justice of God and real God-centered justice never comes about by politics never comes about by legislation. It comes about by regeneration. So justice is now not obeyed. Justice is not followed. It is lived. And it comes from within and manifests step by step, day by day, in societal and interpersonal relations. So the final book for this episode of the podcast is Obadiah. And this is going to be very short because Obadiah is only one chapter long. The big idea of the book of Obadiah is the vengeance of God. And when we talk about the book of Obadiah, we have to put it in context of the book that follows it, the book of Jonah. Because in Obadiah, the big idea is the vengeance of God, where people basically get what they deserve. But then in the next book, the book of Jonah, it's about the mercy of God, where people don't get what they do deserve. So... The big idea of the book of Obadiah is the vengeance of God. And there's a prophecy against Esau or the nation of Edom, the Edomites. And verse 6 says, Oh, how Esau will be ransacked and his hidden treasures searched out. So to make sense of what this verse says, remember, way back in the time of the patriarchs, you had two twin brothers. You had Jacob and Esau. Jacob essentially went life and lived his life the godly way, Esau lived his life the ungodly way. Jacob was renamed Israel, and Jacob, who went about life the godly way, was the father of the nation of Israel. Esau, 
who did what was right in his own eyes, became the father of the Edomites, or the nation of Edom. So now, many, many, many generations later, you have hundreds of thousands of Israelites, and you have hundreds of thousands of Edomites. And basically, the accumulation of sin, the accumulation of not doing what was right in God's eyes, now comes back in the form of judgment on Esau. And now Obadiah is prophesying against Esau and basically saying, you are going to be the recipient of God's vengeance because they are going to receive what they deserve. In contrast now to the Jacobites or the Israelites who were recipients of God's grace, who although they also deserve judgment, who although they also deserved vengeance, They were the recipients of God's mercy and favor. And the final thing I'll say about the book of Obadiah is that it gives us a historical description of the sack of Jerusalem by the Babylonians. Obadiah verse 11 says, On the day that you stood aloof, on the day that strangers carried off his wealth, and foreigners entered his gate and cast lots for Jerusalem, you too were as one of them. Thank you for listening. For more valuable resources, including a bookstore and online Bible study, visit wcsk.org.